You are listening to Geek Fest Rants on the IC Robots Radio Network. You have located Geek Fest Rants, the entertainment podcast for genre geeks like you. Shall we play a game? Covering the world of vintage and current film and television since 2010. Game over, man. Game over. Featuring in-depth conversations on sci-fi, horror, fantasy, comics, toys, and conventions. So say we all. So say we all. And now sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. Fighting does not make you a hero. What if I promise to be careful? Just a shield then. Diana. No sharp edges. Be careful of mankind, Diana. They do not deserve you. You've told me this story. What is this place? Who are you people? We are the bridge to a greater understanding. Right. What is your mission? Well, here's the thing. You are in more danger than you think. The boys in the trenches called her Dr. Poison. Millions would die. The war would never end. I'm going, Mother. If you choose to leave, you may never return. Who will I be if I stay? We'll come. To the war. Well, technically the war is that way, but we got to go this way first. How can a woman fight in this? Who is this young woman? She's my... uh, And, um... Diana, Princess of the Prince, Diana Prince. believe that this war should stop. Help me stop it right now. What are you? You will soon find out. everybody and welcome once again to Geekfest France. My name is Carlos Perone and today we're going to be discussing Wonder Woman, we recently saw it, and Star Wars Laserdiscs. But before we get into the actual subjects, I want to give you guys a little update on what we've been up to. As you probably noticed, during our last couple of episodes we've switched formats a little bit in terms of being able to talk about multi-subjects as opposed to just one subject in our show. And we've also partnered up with the IC Robots Network. Within the IC Robots Network, 
they have a show called the Toys R Us Report. It is one of the shows on the network that I enjoy listening to that also deals with things having to do with genre, 80s, toys, all types of retro and vintage related geeky goodness that is right up our alley. And this we've done recently. We've basically been in contact with each other, myself and the uh, makers of Icy Robots. And the idea came about of why don't we try to maybe gather our resources and be able to form a small community so that we can cross-promote each other's shows and help each other out and allow our different listeners and viewers to be able to sample some of our other shows that we've done and that other people in their network do. At this point, it's only three shows we have on the network, and it might be growing in the future. Obviously, we have ourselves Geek Fest France, we have the Toys R Us Report, and we also have the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega Podcast, which is also in the vein of, I would say, a lot of wrestling and a lot of music-related subjects. So you will see some of our shows being cross-promoted, and if you go to our websites, you will also see links linking you to some of those other shows. Plus, on Facebook, we'll also have some of the shows, you know, cross-promoting each other. So in case you ever want to give it a shot and try them out, you won't be disappointed. Now, let me also give you guys a little background because by doing this cross-promotional endeavor that we've been doing, people jump into shows and they might not know what your background is in terms of, you know, do you really want to go back to show number one to learn what this is all about? Well, let me give you guys, especially our newer listeners, a little background on myself. I've started this show back in 2010, November 23rd, actually, of 2010. And the original intent was to have a group of friends to be able to contribute to the subjects that we like to talk about in person. But many times we were not able to get together and talk about these things. So by recording some of these conversations that we would have when we would get together exclusively for the purpose of talking about these things, whether it was movies, television, comic books, you know, you name it, technology, things having to do with, at the time, laser discs, later DVDs, even all VHS tapes and stuff like that, we would have these get-togethers called GeekFest. And we would be able to hang out for a couple of hours and talk about these things. But later on, you know, as we moved through and out of college and time became more limited in terms of being able to get together, we decided to start recording sessions of us talking with each other about certain subjects, whether we do it over the phone or in person sometimes at other get-togethers that we would kind of sneak out and have a quick conversation about and record it, you know, having to do with a movie we just saw. But at times, we would also be able to get together and talk about certain films uh, that we liked and even do film commentaries where we would watch a film and a lot of us would just comment as the film would be playing a lot of interesting facts about the film to kind of go along with your watching of the film. Well, this went on for years and new people came in, old people went out, and I would say over the last year or so, especially even as far as two years ago, with my move to Florida, the ability and commitment of people to be able to continue to do this started to slip away. So the show naturally started to become more focused on certain individuals and not others. And the overall participation started to narrow and narrow more. So that seemed to be a good place and a good opportunity for the show to kind of rebrand itself and reformat itself. Some of the shows I would listen to, including a couple of the Toys R Us Report episodes, gave me the idea of possibly 
focusing it more and to make it more centric with myself as the primary host. Now, with that said, I still like to dip into, for example, my son because he's into a lot of the things that I'm into and he's also a big comic book guy and sometimes I might have some co-hosts that will like to contribute and you know they're big fans of, of a specific subject you know that I would not ignore with that said like I mentioned before you know I'm always looking for new contributors new hosts as I have a you know a spot I've been putting on lately because I do like the chat format but it's also refreshing to be able to do a whole subject and then be able to switch gears halfway through and go to a different subject, which is something we've been doing lately more and more. We've had shows now where we deal with up to three subjects sometimes because a lot of times you don't need a whole hour to talk about something. Something might only require maybe 15 minutes, which is perfectly fine. And then we can kind of cobble together all these separate pieces and turn them into a show. As I mentioned earlier, Wonder Woman is the big one that we're going to hit today. We recently saw the film, and I have both my wife and my son joining me today to review it. And we must warn you ahead of time, it will be full of spoilers. You know that at this show, we love the spoilers. This is an opportunity for us to really tear a film apart in terms of get very nitpicky about what it's supposed to mean, what it's supposed to say. So we examine all theories, but in order to do that, we have to go through everything that the writer of the film or the director is given us in order for us to be able to do that. So be careful. We got a lot of spoilers coming. And then afterwards, Laserdiscs. I'm going to give you a little background on my particular involvement with Laserdiscs, and specifically the Star Wars saga. How those films made it into my Laserdisc collection, how they progressed, you know, its entire lifeline, because lasers really didn't last too long, but they definitely made a big impact on my collecting, and I believe the industry itself, in terms of leading us to the DVD revolution and beyond. So let's get on with the show and start with Wonder Woman. What did I teach you? You are the Duke of New York. You're a number one. You will not laugh. You will not cry. You will learn by the numbers. I will teach you. Can you dig it? Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. that of Satan. <laughs> oh, really? The Force will be with you, always. All right, well, for today's movie review, we are going to talk about Wonder Woman. We recently saw it in a local theater here in 3D. We were able to take the whole family, so Kyle, Amanda, and my wife Kim were there. And I have Kyle and Kim here today to help me go over the movie and to get our feelings in a row in terms of how we felt about it. I know that for a while now, there were, you know, it's the usual song and dance of, oh, there's reshoots. Oh my God, this movie's going to be horrible. And there was a little bit of that going on, I remember at first. Yeah. Then little by little, the buzz started to change. And over the last, I would say, maybe two weeks, Reports were coming in that people were having a positive reaction to the film. Now, this isn't the first time we've seen Wonder Woman in terms of this is her first solo film, but this particular actress playing Wonder Woman already showed up on two other films, right, Kyle? Well, one other film, which was uh, Batman vs. Superman. And we saw her in the teaser or the trailer for Justice League. Yeah. Now, 
when we saw her last time, there was no backstory other than just the picture and the mysterious yeah, picture. which we see again in this movie. Right, and we see how that picture was taken and where it came from and all that yeah. stuff. But when we saw her in the previous film, it's modern time, and she's already in full-blown Wonder Woman mode in terms of she's just somebody else who all of a sudden comes out of nowhere to help you know, with what's yeah. happening. And in the process, we then get that little mystery thing about the picture, which is, I guess it's a way of teasing us what's happening with this film in terms of saying, oh, wait a minute, the, her background has to do with this old black and white World War One-ish kind of looking picture. Yeah. So that's where we ended up. So let's go over a little bit with the story in terms of one of the best things that you have with a movie like this that everybody usually takes advantage of is the fact that you're doing an origin story. Now, this movie, I think I would say is what, like a third origin story, I think? Because it was a pretty big chunk of the movie, you know, taking well, place. the whole thing was an origin story. Well, I'm talking about her, where she came from. Well, yeah, but like this movie, this entire movie was building up to her, like her first real appearance as Wonder Woman, you know? Right, her introduction to the world. So yeah. let's go over a little bit of that. We start off with her growing up in this mysterious island. Yeah, New Thermoscira. Which is as far as you know, in line with what yeah, the, the comic book is about? Yeah, this was very, like, very tight to the comics. There was I, I couldn't really pick out much differences. You're talking about the, the island stuff. Yeah, the island, all the island stuff was, uh, honestly, that was all spot on to me. But the fact that the movie, when she's an adult and comes out of the island, takes place in World War One. Yeah, originally that, it's... That's not. Originally it's World War Two. That's where she meets D. Trevor. And I could only speculate that the only reason they probably jumped to World War One instead of World War Two is because we already saw World War Two with Captain America. Yeah, this movie definitely handled though like the war aspect much better than yes, movie did. yes, yes. Like I liked the Captain America movie. I know you didn't like it as much as some of the other movies, but I really liked it. But I liked the way that they handled it here better. So in this one, again, we start off with she's in the island. She's being raised, you know, with the, uh, the rest of these Amazonian warriors. And her mother is reluctant to train her in whatever these other warriors are being trained at. And that is part of the mystery in terms of, oh, you know, they, they, they give you this, this um, mythology story of how Zeus battle the you know some of the other gods yeah, and that's and, accurate and, too, yeah. and was it aries is the one that uh, finally had to be defeated yeah and it was in the in the process of the queen helping well yeah the to defeat him yeah those that story it's kind of like the comics only all the gods didn't die in the all process because right. they they're all still around in the right. comics and in this story they're talking about men are also the ones that helped defeat some of these like men are the ones that started you know warring with each other well, at yeah, first because Ares Ares granted them that poison ability. their minds yeah. or something like that and that kind of carries over in, in this movie in terms of the motivation of what is happening further down the line so it's basically she wants to get trained she they don't want to train her but secretly the sister of the queen her aunt, I guess, is yeah. the one that's secretly training her. And she's the one in charge of all the, 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 yeah. the troops, I guess, and training everybody. And in one instance, she gets caught and, you know, she's in trouble and the mother doesn't want to tell her. And, you know, there's some kind of mystery happening. And she also is aware that they have these secret special weapons kind of area in case they ever need to use them again. And, and one of those, you know, you see the, the Lasso of Truth and you see this special sword that is supposed to be the special secret weapon to defeat yeah, Ares if he ever comes back. So in this particular situation, when she's upset about what happens, she sees what appears to be a plane coming through out of nowhere, like materializing in the sky, not coming from a very long distance, kind of 
opening the sky and coming through. And the plane crashes. The pilot is Steve Trevor, played by Chris Pine from Star Trek. As soon as she rescues him and brings him out, there's a whole bunch of other soldiers chasing him in boats. And they come through also, and they land on the beach, and the, you know, the Amazonian troops meet the what appear to be German troops, Ottoman Empire Germans, and they get into a little bit of a battle there. As a result of that battle, they lose a lot of Amazonians. They kill everybody except for Trevor. Diana has to defend them because they think he might be part of that group, but he actually helps them defeat them. But in the process, the sister gets injured and dies. So Diana no longer has anybody who trained her who's kind of on her side. And they bring Trevor into their village, I guess, and he kind of lets them know what's going on because they put the last sort of truth on him. And they all find out that, you know, it is a world war that we're in the middle of right now. These guys are completely unaware of it. And Diana decides that she wants to get out there and help, you know, with what's happening because she associates this war with basically the return of Ares. And Ares is, you know, in her opinion, poisoning the, the, the minds of men and causing them to be in this war situation. So that's where we're at with the story with her coming to England into this war. Now, at this point in the story, I don't want to say typical, but it's your common, you know, fish out of water kind of scenario where we have all these scenes where she's adapting to society and really not fitting in, you know, trying to buy clothes and stopping a crime and, you know, these things that are happening because Steve, the second he walks into England, they're already after him because he's a spy, basically. He's an English spy, but he's American, I believe, right? Yep. So he's an American British spy. Well, I mean, he's, I guess, like, they sent him to work with the with English the, government. With the British. Yeah. And he brings her to his superiors to get approval for, listen, we have to do something about so-and-so because he's developing some kind of nerve agent weapons. And there's apparently this woman who's disfigured, who's like a mad scientist who's helping yeah, them Dr. out. Poison. Yeah, he has to kind of convince them and they don't want to go along with it. The fact that there's a woman in the room already freaks them out and they don't want to pursue things because the armistice is about to be signed. You know, there's supposed to theoretically be peace coming, so they're trying not to have any more fighting take place, anything new that would disturb this apparent peace that's coming. But at the same time, General Dudendorf, who's the main bad guy we're dealing with here, other than the scientist, the woman scientist, he doesn't care that the armistice is coming. He's convinced that they have a better weapon in the works. He kills half his own generals in the process because they want to stop him from continuing with his experiments and he's just going to keep going. So you have him keep going, ignoring the peace and Trevor telling them this guy's not stopping because he, you know, he escaped from where they were. He witnessed, you know, and he actually stole a, um, like a diary that has some of the formulas of, uh, of this poison that's being uh, yeah. created. So they don't approve him going on a mission to stop him, but he does anyway. He, on his own, he sets out to do it. He does have a guy on the inside, a British guy that is going to kind of help him quietly without anybody knowing to assemble this team and they all head out to the front. So it's Trevor, it's Diana and three other guys, yeah. three other like mercenary types let's say yeah there's the sniper the the sniper the actor and yeah. the native american guy yeah and these are all the guys that we saw in that picture yeah from the previous film so 
As they're approaching the front, you know, they're getting bombed left and right and this and that. And Diana starts to see what's happening and actually witnesses the atrocities taking place and the soldiers getting hurt and all this stuff. And they stop at one of those famous World War I trenches that you're stuck in a trench for months and nobody moves. They just, just shoot at each other and nothing happens. They just stay there. So she goes up and takes off her clothes that she's wearing and underneath she's got her costume, her Wonder Woman costume. She's got her shield and so she starts moving forward on the line and then Trevor and the other guys follow her and she's able to disable you know, the, the German troops and then the rest of the uh, British troops kind of start following her too. So they are able to basically move the line forward and in the process free a nearby village that's apparently being held hostage from the main headquarters of where this poison is being manufactured. So, like I said, they push forward through the line, and then they reach the village, and they fight everybody at the village, all the German soldiers, they defeat the soldiers, they, they free the people, they're all kind of partying, everybody's celebrating, and they all, they're all able to kind of spend the night there calmly, you know, without any fighting going on. And the next day, they head out to the next location, which is the actual castle where this Poison is being manufactured, so they have to infiltrate the castle. She goes in pretending to be somebody else, you know, wearing a like a party dress because they're having some kind of party or something. And the rest of the guys are kind of sneaking in from a different area. So we get to a point in the castle where in the middle of the night they start launching something. And it ends up being these gas canisters that are they're basically bombing the town they were just in. And she freaks out runs out of there in a horse and, and gets to the town and notices that everybody's dead. All the people they just saved are not dead. It was kind of like all for nothing, kind of. And Steve Trevor reminds her, listen, our mission is to stop these, you know, stop these poisons from being created and, and we have to destroy them. And she's, she just wants to save people and she wants to be able to stop Ares. She's convinced that Ares is the chief general. And they kind of disagree there. She wants to do one thing. He wants to do another thing. So they kind of part ways. So she kind of goes off to try to find this general. And he goes off to kind of stop all these poison bombs that are in, the, uh, in a plane, in a, a huge, gigantic plane being loaded, ready to be sent out somewhere to start bombing, I guess, England or whatever. And now you have the, the third act of the movie, which is kind of your typical superhero type of uh okay she defeats the bad guy she fights with him he has these slight superpowers sometimes because he takes this it's almost like a drug that he makes him super strong but she's able to defeat him anyway and she ends up killing him because at first she was just kind of knocking people out and pushing them out of the way but afterwards when she noticed that everybody is just getting killed left and right and they bombed everybody she's kind of like okay i have to kind of turn this up a notch a little bit because you know, this isn't working. People are still dying no matter what I do. Trevor, on the other hand, is sneaking into that plane and with the help of his friends, and he takes off on the plane and is trying to figure out a way of, you know, how do I get rid of these bombs? So as she finishes fighting off the other guy and kills him, this general, she kind of realizes or starts to feel like, wait a minute, I, I don't think this is working either because I just killed him. And magically everybody didn't just stop fighting like she thought that they would because of this mythological story that Ares is poisoning people's minds so as soon as you kill Ares everybody stops fighting and they're all friends again or something but doesn't happen at that point we realized also that 
the guy that was helping them, the British guy, shows up to kind of tell her, listen, this isn't working. You're now, you're going to have to do things my way because I'm the guy in charge. And she realizes he is Ares. So they're kind of bringing the supernatural mythological part, kind of shoehorning it at the end of the story. And, you know, he has all these powers. He can teleport from one area to the other. He can kind of like summon steel and metal. And at one point he blows things up and then he creates like armor, which is similar to when we were watching it in the beginning of yeah, the film. The, the armor is more like what his comic book representation With is. the horns and all that stuff. Yeah. And that's kind of how they showed it to us in the beginning when they were showing yeah. us how Zeus vanquished, you know, killed him and whatever. One point also that it's worth mentioning, and it's a little bit of a spoilery point, and that is that we do find out that Diana is really Zeus's daughter, and that's something that her mother kept quiet, and that is the mystery that she wouldn't let her know, which is why when she finally kills the bad guy, Ares, she kind of says something like, she calls him brother, because she kind of understands, or we understand now, that the weapon was not the sword, because she loses the sword. The sword gets destroyed by Ares. She is the weapon, and that's why Ares wants her to join him, so that they can both, you know, do that whole rule the world type of thing, you know, brother and sister ruling the world. And that is the crux, the big mysterious part of the story. So, Again, this is a more typical superhero ending where you have these incredible supernatural things taking place with, you know, the fighting and the fighting. And, in the, and, and while this is happening, Trevor is able to get the plane away, but he realizes the only way to destroy this is going to be to blow the plane up while he's flying it. And he does that. And that also triggers, you know, with her, the loss of her new boyfriend i guess you can call him which is a tragic point in the story which i was surprised that they went that far yeah that getting that, rid of a character like that well i mean that's how it kind of happens in the comics really when they when after they first meet and also i kind of felt like that was kind of a lot like captain america <laughs> only it's more about the person on the ground than the person in the plane uh, yeah i mean it, there are some similarities there. But anyway, at the end, you have your... Again, I don't want to say typical, but it is kind of typical. She finally is able to defeat Ares, and people do kind of stop fighting. Now, I don't know if they stop fighting because Ares has been defeated or because the armistice came through. Now, I don't think it's because Ares has been defeated because otherwise Batman and versus Superman would have never happened. There's Because there's, there's still bad people out there, so... Of course, of course. But, you know, there's bad people, and then you have the supernatural superhero villains that are still yeah. all over the place. Now, another thing that I forgot to mention was that the movie actually starts in present time because she yeah. is going to a museum... She's like to a museum curator Right, to or retrieve something. a suitcase. And in that suitcase... There's that picture that we it's talked the, about earlier the actual from the other from the other film from a note from Bruce Wayne. You know, this is what you were looking for, or something like that. Yeah. And she's kind of like reviewing it. And so I guess that must take place before. No, I would have to be after Batman versus Superman. Right after she's he's delivering the picture. Yeah, to this her. is when they're forming the Justice League. Oh, okay, okay. So that's where we're at right now. The movie basically ends with them being back in the city, looking at, you know, everybody celebrating the end of the war, and they're looking at a memorial wall with a lot of the, I guess, the dead soldiers and pictures of them, and you kind of focus on the picture of Steve Trevor, and again, everybody's celebrating, but she's very sad at the end. And then we jump forward in time again to what we just mentioned earlier, you know, the modern day time where she kind of wraps up looking at the picture, 
and she hears like uh, some kind of call, some kind of explosion or something in the background that makes her go outside and she's now she's ready to go back into Wonder Woman mode, I guess, and continue doing her crime fighting, I guess, in, in modern time. So that's pretty much where the movie leaves us. So let's talk a little bit about the film itself in terms of, you know, how do we compare it to other films? How is this special or not special? What things were done well or not? Why don't we start with Kim? I think it's special, all right. It's the first superhero film I've seen in a long time that really struck me. I mean, I've enjoyed, yeah, I've enjoyed Thor. I've enjoyed some of the Spider-Mans, Batmans. So I'm not saying I don't enjoy the films. I do. But I've gotten a little tired of repetitive origin stories that change from time to time. I've gotten a little tired of making some of these superhero characters, I guess, more, quote, modern. I've gotten tired of seeing superheroes battling each other. And none of that rings true to me. I mean, I'm a child of the 70s. So to me, my superhero characters were good through and through. They were brave. They were bold. And everything they did was out of, you know, through their heart or through a sense of justice. And you don't always see that as clean cut anymore. But I think I saw that in Wonder Woman. Everything she does, whether it's aggressive, kind, sweet, naive, bold, everything comes from her heart, comes from a sense of justice. And I found that really refreshing. And I I also, I have to admit, enjoyed the female power component of it. Well, the fact that she is not from our, I don't want to say world, but from our time or, or even our civilization, let's say, it's different because you're dealing with a character that is not already used to what's happening in the present. Your Captain Americas, your Iron Man, your Spider-Mans, they're all contemporary figures, even though Captain America jumped Thor. from the past. to the, But but Thor is not a babe in the woods. He's a warrior, so he's already used to that mode. This is one of the first characters we get that is completely, in a way, well, yeah. innocent in terms yeah, of not being used to this level of violence that exists in the world because like her entire existence they've never actually had a war of some sort right and they purposely existence. shielded her as a young woman from anything having to do with violence because the mother didn't want her involved in any of it until later but still by the time she's adult enough when she jumps over to our world she still has an experience like her only experience of violence and, and cruelty let's say is the encounter you know in the beach That is the only time she's ever seen that, other than the mythological stories her mother has been telling her all her life. Yeah, but war can change people quickly. And we see her changing very quickly in the trenches, making the decision to lead them past that no man's land point. She gets more aggressive. And especially when Steve Trevor, when he dies. um, She's She's no longer pushing people back or tripping them or anything. She's she's slashing and stabbing and everything. By being naive about stuff is over. For her, but still, she still does stuff from a point of justice and love after that. She's a true classic superhero mentality. The other thing that makes it different, and you mentioned it, that makes it refreshing, but it's not the fault of other films. In other words, yes, Spider-Man, they're going to continue to retell Spider-Man and Batman and Superman. Those are your A-tier characters. With Wonder Woman, we never had her origin story on, on a film. We had the TV show... 
and the TV show, it was definitely not as campy as Batman's television show. Right. But it was it 70s was. camp. Yes. And I remember I loved it as a little girl. And I've seen it more recently and I'm like, and oh it my It does gosh. not hold up. It doesn't hold up <laughs> it at does all. Not hold However, up. the one thing that does hold up is that same nature, that same sense of justice. And that's the part that I'm missing in some of these movies. Yes, they act for justice, but I just don't enjoy watching superhero characters fight each other over a disagreement. Well, but to that's me, something I know. It I wasn't know. invented I mean, the, it wasn't invented two years ago. It came from the comics. The comics yeah. at a certain point this you gotta do something right. different. That's, so that, in the comics you have them fight each other, then right. they're friends again and right. you know you all kinds of weird the stuff comics, like that. But it's still to me a superhero is supposed to portray a certain ideal well, and and you can blame it on the comic books whatever if i want to see heroes that are that faulty there's plenty of stories for me to well i've to heard follow. i've heard similar arguments with people our age let's say because a lot of people kind of get stuck with the image of christopher reeve they get stuck with the image of even a more modern image like captain america which is one of the reasons I wasn't a big fan of the first Captain America film. I enjoyed it, but I found it kind of cheesy in terms of the way they treated World War II. It's almost a sentimental, romantic view of World War II, as opposed to this one, where I think they treated it completely different, yeah, this and it's was, World War I, and this it's, was more, it's like more a war serious. Film. This was more like right. a war film than Captain war, America was. The, the Captain America World War II portray, as far as I'm... And I know a lot of it was supposed to be a little cheesy because yeah because Tydra's cheesy <laughs> right but also the way that you know he's selling war bonds and people are singing and the, and yeah. and but he's aware of the fact that it's cheesy but yeah. the war itself the way that they were handling it wasn't they really loaded the Hydra part a lot because they I guess they didn't want to deal with a real Nazi presence if, in a film if they went with like the comics that all the hydra agents would have been in pajama green and white yellow well, pajamas that's even worse that would be that would so but the, bad but let me put it this way the world war ii aspect of captain america was not the raiders of the lost stark world war ii aspect no. those are real nazis you're seeing portrayed in film now granted they're not Schindler's list nazis <laughs> no but they're not uh saving private ryan nazis but with Raiders of the Lost Ark, even though you're dealing in a supernatural theme at certain points, they were able to keep those characters pretty serious and realistic. Mm-hmm. Captain America did not do that, as far as I'm concerned. But this one did. This one, you're dealing with World War One, which is a probably, we talked about this earlier, it's probably the reason why they didn't go into World War Two is because it's been done already. Yeah. And you don't want to repeat yourself. So World War One could kind of fit in the whole scheme of things. Yeah, I mean, it's not that much of a time difference. It's only like 20 and, years. And we kind of know already that they're aging completely different. We don't know what, like when she's young, we don't know what year that is in our yeah, world. It's, no, it could be like the the Middle Ages for all we know. Mm-hmm. I don't know how her aging. Yeah, works. it's honestly I don't know either. Like when it's always something like that, I always picture it's like the clones from Star Wars. They grow up, yeah. they're grown like pretty quickly to be that prime age, and then they stay that prime age for a while. And then they decelerate later. Yeah, but that's Star Wars. Here, yeah. I have a feeling with her, it's a gradual progression, like a normal human progression, except, yeah, you know, two years of hers could be 50 years of, of ours. I don't know. It could be something like that. So yeah. who the hell knows? The fact that she looks identical, you know, 100 years later. Yeah, that says a lot. Yeah. Okay. There's obviously, okay, so they're going in that direction. So who cares? I mean, they might not visit the past. I mean, they might have some flashbacks in the future of her more of her growing up to to get more cameos and more scenes of her being trained or whatever. But 
I think we're kind of done with the origin now. They're going to move forward. So, yeah. and uh, oh, and they also just said uh, Patty Jenkins is signed on to do the second one oh, when good. that's ready. So she's, she's she, she's the she's she she's, did a phenomenal it's in her contract. Job. Yeah, her claim to fame was the movie Monster. If you remember Charlene Theron vehicle, she played the serial killer. She won an Oscar for it, Charlene Theron. And apparently, she was supposed to direct Thor right. two. Yeah, yeah, Dark, Dark World. World. Yeah, and uh, that kind of fell through at some point. Yeah, she too. she it was her decision. She just didn't want to because it was something with creative wise. So it's a good thing she yeah. held out for this one. So now let's talk a little bit about the DC world. I know everybody craps all over DC for the darkness issue. And yes, it's dark, but that's the DC flavor. In other words, Marvel has its look. DC has its yeah, look. DC is generally in the comics a significantly right. darker storytelling. From Dark Knight, which is still my yeah. favorite superhero film ever, Dark Knight. Dark Knight is my favorite, but Captain America 2 uh, Winter Soldier is my favorite of the Marvel side. Yeah. How about you? Where are you with that? Yeah, well, I definitely put this movie above Captain America, the first one, wherever yeah. that was. But I I mean, you're putting me on the spot here with this. Yeah. But what's your favorite? Come my on. My favorite right now, I guess, I, I think it would still be... Maybe Avengers or Civil War. Okay. What about uh, DC? What's your favorite DC? DC, I'd have to say, would probably be Dark Knight 2. Yeah. Okay. I would say Dark Knight was, and Wonder Woman has surpassed it for me. What about Marvel? Have you seen enough? You haven't seen all the Marvel films, so you have you, I, I, you haven't seen Civil you War. Didn't you didn't see need, Civil War. You, you, yeah, because you're, you're still poo-pooing over Spider-Man. I mean, I if you, didn't see Civil if War. you, you well, let's yet. put it this way: if you, but I've seen that's what we should watch. Civil War is a continuation of Winter Soldier, so it's that flavor. But you, uh, but the Captain America movies and Winter One and yeah. Winter Soldier bored me, so I'm I'm not. I guess Civil War is more of an Avengers film, in my opinion. Now, I did enjoy Avengers. I mean. Let's talk a little bit about the... And Thor. I love the Thor films. And there's one more coming that looks really, really good. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the, I don't want to say controversy, but the baggage that a movie like this comes with. There was an issue apparently with the, I think the Alamo Theater, because it's Wonder Woman, they did a a women's night screening yeah. that you had the typical reaction from the typical people that react a certain way. <laughs> I assume it's the same people that uh, reacted bad and wanted to boycott Star Wars when they realized there was a yeah, black person is... and a woman leading the film. Yeah, this was the, I think this was the Texas theaters, only the Texas theaters at the time were doing that one screening. Well, Look, that, well, and then I think the, they, they actually, I think they did more. Well, out, like, it was out, in Texas after all. It so. was yeah. a, it was a publicity stunt to raise money, right? Who were we raising money for? For Planned Parenthood. It was to raise money for Planned Parenthood. They decided somebody creative said, hey, it's a female superhero. It's a female director. Let's have a girl's night. I, I, and, and I think it's a fantastic idea. Oh, yeah. It's a fantastic idea. But it, it wasn't meant to irritate anybody. It wasn't meant to. It, it was a, hey, well, let's I'm get not women sure. together, I'm not gather sure what, money. And what put triggered the, the, the backlash? Was it the women's only or the Planned Parenthood or a combination of both? Because it, usually was, the, the people that don't like one don't like the other. Right. It was probably a combination. But I mean, you know, if you're going to be against them raising money for Planned Parenthood, then fine. That's your right. People have different opinions. I understand that. But don't bash a gathering of women watching. Well, a, 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 then you look like an idiot. Like I'm I said, sorry. Once, once again, it's, it's a group sounds of women to me. To watch a, you have the first female superhero film. 
to come along. I mean, well, that's just, the problem you is like that you, you women need to know your place, and this <laughs> this film does not put you in your place. So that's oh, yes, that's, it did. that's probably it the, did. the problem. It it put us in our place as an incredibly strong superhero, and not only that, the woman who directed it. She she was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, that's well, neither here nor there. Well, like I said before, nice the, the 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 protest, uh, the backlash, which was I haven't heard squat. I I don't know if yeah. they got three people to boycott the thing, but again, it sounds to me like a similar group as before. They all I remember they all went on Fox screaming about how much they hated yeah. Star Wars, how much they're going to yeah, burn was... their tickets, whatever. But apparently, they did have another Fox incident where one of their anchors was complaining that she wasn't wearing yeah. the red, white, and blue. She, she's never been to and, America. What's your problem? But she's America. She represents the you know but the she America. Doesn't, but she was what? she hasn't even visited America care. in the movie. You until... know, it's supposed oh, to be like a Captain time. America. You know, the female. <laughs> Captain America, right? Isn't that what she's supposed oh, to be? No. Why, why does I, she have to speak in a funny accent? Look, what the hell's I her problem? Like, I, like, it'll be, it's okay if they have the stars. I don't care <laughs> if they have the stars or not. Like, no, well, know? hey, I'm not, she's they're, not, they're she's not, not they, from America. Well, she doesn't have to do it. Well, don't let our Fox friends know that she's an, uh, an Israeli actress. You know, they're, they're oh, yeah, freak out what, about Lebanon, that. Lebanon boycotted, the, they, they shut down, they won't show the movie in Lebanon. Because well, she was an Israeli Well, actress. that's a whole other political yeah. crap. But I remember the same person that was complaining about the screening, the women-only screening. They were also complaining about how women should uh, just stick to what they know, let the men do the fighting because women were not meant that's to fight. True. And it's like, dude, do you realize she was a soldier in the Israeli army so she can probably yes. ha- this yeah. is the real person we're talking yeah, about here. She was, she was from, she's from Israel. She's from Israel. They have mandatory service there and everybody yeah. has to go. But anyway, let's get away from the political side of this and kind of go back to uh, the person that's not here to talk about the film, our daughter. And, you know, we've been trying to expose our daughter to a lot of these type of things in terms of, you know, whenever you have a television show or whenever you have a movie in this case where there are lead characters that are women you know, we always try to show it to her. With her, it's with Rebels and Clone Wars. You know, they created a character that's a central major character, and she kind of grabbed onto this character and made that connection that, it, oh, there's somebody that kind of maybe, I don't know, looks like me, represents me, is is kind of more like me than the other characters. Oh, that was Ahsoka. With Ahsoka, even that though was... she's not even a human character. Right, but I mean, the, the whole deal with Ahsoka, I think Amanda was, what, six years old maybe? And she she just loved her because in the beginning when Ahsoka was younger, she had a very, you know, she had more of a funniness to her. And, and then her strength and her boldness, Amanda just really took to it. And then when she met the person who voiceovers her, you know, Ashley Eckstein, and she's met her several times, I mean, what a wonderful person, what a wonderful role model. So we kind of got lucky with the character and the actual person who played her was a legitimately good role model. And and that's the kind of characters and role models Amanda's had. And I remember, lucky for that. I remember, you know, I would try to kind of get her to tell me, you know, why, why do you like this character? And you know, with Amanda, it's... Yeah, it's like pulling difficult. teeth trying to get words out of her. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 I remember this is years ago. She I remember she would say she kicks butt. I'm like, oh, okay, that's interesting. She kicks, kicks butt. butt. Because I remember with the episodes with Ahsoka fighting Ventress, how mm. she kind of can hold her own and stuff like that. So I remember she said that. Now in this movie, I know I kept kind of and she kept I kept saying to her, You're gonna see Wonder Woman, right? And to the point where she was to the point where it was like she was like 
what the hell is it with this Wonder Woman? Why, why are you constantly trying to get me to see, you know, what's the point? Well, I have a feeling that for our daughter, it doesn't, doesn't really matter that much because unlike other places, unlike other times, unlike many households, probably in the area where we live here, the idea of a leading character being a woman, a leading character kicking ass is normal. It is like different from a lot of people who might be watching this for the first time and going, what the hell is this? you know, is this possible? How could this be? You know, this never existed. And it's like, well, that's because it's different. I don't particularly see such a such a reaction out of Amanda as I would probably imagine out of some other households where this type of exposure might cause some problems. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think anybody in our circle of friends, but I have to admit to you guys, when we said we were going to go see Wonder Woman, I wanted to see it. But given, you know, my viewpoint of a lot of these superheroes, while the films are great, them not ringing true to me and giving me that superhero sense of excitement, I was kind of expecting more of the same. And halfway through the film, I was just so psyched. I mean, she's easily my favorite superhero character now. I mean, I just love the combination of her toughness of her war ability and her softness and her side of I just love the combination of her toughness her heart her boldness her war training she's bold and she's full of heart at the same time this I think goes to the whole issue of diversity in terms of how these films are diversifying their cast and their characters when you have people that see a character that looks like them, that maybe talks like them, maybe acts like them. It's a completely new thing, and people start to take ownership of that. That happens all the time. It's happened especially in this genre, and this genre is known for taking ownership. You take ownership of whether it's a sci-fi thing or a horror thing or a fantasy thing. It becomes, you know, part of what you are at that point. And once you start seeing the possibilities of, wait a minute, if this could also be somebody like me, then you know, especially for kids, you know, their brain starts to kind of click in a different way of trying to see the the possibilities of what they can possibly achieve, maybe, or even create. It's like, oh, this isn't for me. This, you know, let's say you, you, you like to write, you're a writer or you're a filmmaker or whatever. It's like, you always see these films, but it's like, yeah, it's great. But you know what? People like me could never do that thing or could even be into that thing. So once you start seeing these characters that kind of resemble you, it kind of changes people a little bit. You know, we have Black Panther coming up. All of a sudden, you're going to have a wave of different looking people that are going to be brought into the circle. Now, we've had uh, African-American characters already, but I think this was going to be the first lead character. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, the Falcon's been around, but he's not a lead. Yeah, he's not. He Well, he's a lead, but he's not the lead. The lead. This uh, isn't an origin story. You know. Yeah, this, this is, I mean, probably the first time since Blade. Yeah, since Blade probably, but Blade was before. Blade was the the second Renaissance of uh, superhero films. Yeah, but like in Blade this came in, in the, the middle. MCU, yeah, the, 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 the current modern incarnation of the superhero films. Black Panther is going to be the first of its kind. Now remember, Wonder Woman's the first, as far as women are concerned. We have Captain Marvel coming. Yeah, that's going to be Marvel's response. That's Marvel's first yeah. female lead. Yeah, that's, that's going to be coming out, I think, after Infinity Wars. Both Infinity War movies are over. So it's good that both DC and Marvel are, you know, in their own little 
private war with each other. Yeah. They respond in that way in terms of expanding the diversity of their characters. The way the critics also responded to this movie too, like especially Rotten Tomatoes. I remember Batman vs Superman it was like thirty percent. And then, like, Suicide Squad was, like, 20%, and then this one's, like, 93%. Yeah, this one's getting a lot of good buzz, not just the critics, but the audience, uh, which, yeah. which is really good, because a lot of times, when the critics give you a good numbers and the, and the audience don't give you good numbers, people are like, oh, that's the critics are just being, they're being PC. They're, like, they're being nice because they're supposed to be nice. But no, this is a genuinely good like, movie. I would say it's probably the best one so far of the you know the justice league type of crew in terms of your batmans your yeah. supermans i still hold on to my dark knight as my favorite especially because of heath ledger he stole the movie the guy just stole the movie <laughs> yeah but as far as i'm concerned this one's now the lead of yeah. the dc's uh, oh yeah definitely yeah by far but like batman versus superman for me the more and more i talk about it and think about it the less and less i like it wow. just because of how choppy it is at certain points and then suicide squad like it sets up a good universe but that's all it does is set up that's it it was one gigantic origin story yeah and then suicide squad honestly i thought it was a great suicide squad movie but as a movie it's it's not that good because <laughs> the way it's it's too choppy but that's kind of what suicide squad was in the comics and that's that's kind of how you got to read suicide squad too and i i thought it was a great interpretation of them but as a movie, it's not that good. <laughs> well, let's see what direction they go now next with, with her. Obviously, we are going to see her in, yeah, in Justice League. She's going to be, you know, she's going to have her moment there, but it's not a lead role. I hope they keep her the way she was in this film. I hope there's more of the same. Even if she doesn't have a huge role, I hope that she's... Well, she is, because uh, in this movie, she's already on Batman's team when, we, when the movie's going to start, because mm-hmm. she's... She was his first recruit for the Justice League after Superman well, passed. Well, maybe she could set him straight on a few things then. And obviously Superman <laughs> returns. Yeah, Superman will return. We for, just haven't seen any Justice footage. Justice League, but, yeah. uh, I don't know how important he will be in it. He will. I don't know if he jumps in in the middle, in the beginning, or at yeah. the end. I don't know. Who but, cares? And also, I think at some point, whether in Justice League or in the Wonder Woman sequel, Steve Trevor, I think, is going to come back. Because in the comics, he comes back in the modern day somehow. Yeah, and, so, yeah, and he also did it, and he also did in the in the old television show. Yeah. They, they did both uh, World War II yeah. and modern. I so, like and I don't remember how they worked it out writing-wise. Yeah. I don't know I how I feel that like works. he's going to be part of Argus in some way. He's going to be kind of like maybe Agent Coulson of the DC Universe or something. Because <laughs> his character is a very important character in the Justice League yeah. as a whole. I, I don't un- yeah, I don't understand how they're going to bring him back. But they, but ha- they honestly, they like they have to bring him back with all the comic knowledge that people know. They have to bring him back somehow. Yeah. Two more points I'd like to make a little bit after recording uh, the show. There was an article posted interviewing the director and and she did theorize or summarize or, I mean, it's her movie. She can say whatever she wants. That she is speculates that the age of Diana is about 800 years old when we meet her leaving the island. Which means for the contemporary films, the Justice League, Batman vs. Superman, when we see her in modern times and even in this film in the beginning and at the end, she's about 900 years old. Which would place her birth somewhere around year 1000 1100 somewhere around that time frame so that kind of helps us gauge what we're looking at with this particular race of warrior women my last comment having to do with and i'm going to bring up politics again i think this is a perfect character to bring in during our current situation politically in terms of trying to balance the deck a little bit now you know with portraying this character that 
politically, <laughs> this particular type of character has been diminished and insulted and brought down to the ground, you know, as far as what's happening politically right now. It's, it's a good way to counterbalance what is coming out of, uh, you know, the political spectrum right now with a character like this. So I assume everybody uh, is thumbs up on this one. Thumbs up. Oh, yeah. Some Two thumbs. thumbs up. And Amanda is not here, but she definitely gives us thumbs up too. Alrighty, we will let you guys know when we have more information on future DC films. I guess Justice League is yeah, right around Justice the corner. Justice in November, yep. So we'll be hitting that one next. And all the other future ones, because they're just cranking them out like they're going out of style. You can collect them all. You are a toy! Batteries not included. Get those wonderful toys. Details on specially marked packages at participating stores. Is that the $6 million man's boss? It's Oscar Goldman. Why do you have that? That's worth a lot of money. That's much more valuable than Steve Austin. Action figures each sold separately. Hi, I'm Chucky, and I'm your friend to the end. Some assembly required. All your favorite Star Wars heroes and villains. I have three of each. One to display, one to open, and one just in case. For our collectible segment today, I like to talk about laser discs. Something that a lot of us who are, you know, big movie buffs, I would say uh, probably around the early to mid 90s, probably had quite a, a number of them. Uh, some of us probably still have them. Some people probably still even have functioning laser disc players at their home, but it's more probably not an everyday type of thing that you would use. But the specific thing about LaserDisc that I'd like to talk about today is Star Wars films. There was a time where, aside from other formats, LaserDiscs took a leap forward. As far as quality, picture, bonus features, all these extra things that we kind of consider them to be the norm today with DVDs and Blu-rays, was something that was kind of pioneered at one time on the LaserDisc format. My particular introduction to Laserdiscs came, I would say, probably around college. I would say probably around 1990, uh, maybe a little earlier than that. But probably 90 was the beginning of it for me because I used to have a friend who, in college, had gotten, you know, he wasn't an avid collector of odd and unusual uh, VHS material, you know, part of what we used to do for our Geek Fest, our original Geek Fest, was to go to each other's homes and watch all this weird stuff on VHS that people used to find, especially this one friend. And one of the things he got before a lot of us did was a functional laser display. But most of us were still a little reluctant because we were all still VHS people. And the idea of investing a couple of hundred dollars, and back then, the earlier, earlier investors could have been spending anywhere from, uh, you know, three, four, five hundred dollars or more, because obviously when you have new technology, the early investors or the early people that jump in that bandwagon end up buying the expensive, you know, guinea pig type of models, models that might not necessarily have all the features that eventually you get for a more reasonable price. But the idea of a player wasn't something that a lot of us were ready to jump on right away. The price, obviously, was something that kind of threw everyone back a little bit. The fact that depending on the movie you had, 
you had to flip the disc, you know. And by disc, I'm talking about a LP record, vinyl record size disc, uh, similar looking to a DVD right now, or even a CD. You know, you have this shiny dual-sided disc. Eventually, they had machines that you would not have to flip them. The laser would go from one side to the other side to read the bottom of the disc just as much as you're reading the top of the disc. But the early on machines, uh, you know, they were not flippers. So what convinced me to adopt, uh, you know, this new format was this whole thing having to do with pan and scan versus widescreen. Pan and scan versus widescreen, it's something that most of us grew up with not really understanding or really appreciating or really making the connection that when you go to a movie theater, most times you're watching a very wide-looking film. But when you came home to a regular television set, films that were on VHS, for example, or films that were just played on television, regular television, they were not in this very wide format. They were more of a, a box format. Not necessarily a box. The aspect ratio was 4 by 3 as opposed to the wider 2 35 by 1 or 255 by 1, you know, very wide width times height, as opposed to, like I said before, your 4 by 3, 4 wide, 3 high, slightly wider, very slightly wider than the height, almost a square, let's say. So I do remember in college hearing about, oh, well, in Japan, you know, they have HD sets, and in Japan, they have different aspect ratio already, and, you know, you were able to watch things pretty much in the same aspect ratio that you watch them in the movie theater. And still, it wasn't the type of thing that I was like, yeah, but, you know, what would that look like? You know, what, what exactly are you dealing with when you go to that extent to be able to see an image? The best thing to do is to do a comparison. And believe it or not, it's, you just have to do the comparison. You have to watch the same scene of a movie at the same time. And compare, you know, top to bottom. You watch, you have on the top of the image, you have a nice big white screen image. And on the bottom of the image, you have a squarish image. And you kind of see how digitally it is somebody's job to go back and forth. So when you have a wide image, it's almost like you're looking at the whole picture. You are looking at the whole picture. But with pan and scan, you're only looking at a, let's say, the center of the picture. Sometimes you're looking at the right. Or sometimes you're looking at the left. So every time the film cuts, an editor would have to then make a cut and reframe the shot so for example the three guys standing on the right and a car on the left well you know what aim the screen at the three guys on the left and fill the screen with those three guys forget about the car on the right that kind of things sometimes in movies you would have the problem where action would take place in a wide format that was very important on either end let's say for example a gunfight a western gunfight and i think that happened on I think it might have been Silverado. The movie was Silverado, where you have two gunfighters at opposite ends of a very wide image. And for television purposes, what you ended up doing, I mean, when you're watching it in the movies, both of them draw at the same time, both of them fire, and one of them falls down. Let's say for the sake of argument, the guy on the right falls down dead. Great. But when you watched it in a Paniscan manner, the editor has to decide, which am I going to show you? I can't show you both because the image is too wide. So I'm going to show you the guy on the left, and then I'm going to cut to the guy on the right, and then I'm going to cut to the guy on the left. So he's creating this suspense, if you will, by cutting back and forth between the two. But finally, when they shoot, what you end up seeing, I believe, if I remember right, was the good guy focus on him shooting, and then cut to the bad guy falling down. 
So you've altered the film in reality. The director never intended there to be two cut shots from one to the other. The director never intended for you to have to go back and forth between the other two. So you have to do that. Sometimes they even, again, digitally pan left and right. If you want to see the whole action without making a cut, they would just pan left and right. The guy on the right talks, pan right. The guy on the left talks, pan left, right, pan right left pan left so again you're creating these camera moves that were never meant to be there in the first place the director never intended those camera moves to exist now granted in the past because people knew that eventually a lot of movies would be on television sometimes i imagine they would shoot things in a way so that they kind of kept the action in the middle knowing that at a certain point this film was going to be adapted for television and they're going to have to do the pan and scan thing so they kind of kept the action in a certain place. Well, what ends up happening, obviously, and it's really hard to explain unless you're actually seeing it, is that you lose information on the right, you lose information on the left sometimes, sometimes you get, like I said before, these back and forth actions, these camera pans that are not meant to exist, or you outright miss something, because when two things happen at the same time and the opposite ends of a widescreen image, you are going to miss one, because you can't see the whole thing. So the way that they worked around that, especially for laser discs at a certain point, not in the beginning, but at a certain point, was designed the widescreen format. The widescreen format basically took, let's say, your typical old-style television set, 4x3, and put a black bar in the top, a black bar in the bottom, and a white image in the middle. Now, what happens here is you do have the full image from the left edge to the right edge. You get the full, full, big rectangular image of whatever film you're watching. The downside is that in order to be able to see the left and the right, the top and the bottom, I don't want to say get squeezed because that's a bad term, squeezing the image. You're not squeezing the image. But all of a sudden you do end up with a lot of black on the top and a lot of black on the bottom that just looks odd to first time viewers. Some people just don't understand it. I remember I used to go to stores. This is back when I used to rent movies and people would say, I want to rent this movie, but I want to make sure it's not the one that they have all that black stuff in the top and the bottom. I mean, the picture is so tiny. But you do end up basically sacrificing some of the size in order to be able to see left and right. And one way to compensate for that, you know, back in our days was to basically get a bigger TV. <laughs> the bigger the TV, the more that you can make up for letterboxed films. Now, if you don't care and it doesn't matter to you, then don't bother with it, obviously. You know, you stick to your pan and scan movies and you're happy. But for us who enjoyed watching the original frame of the film, the original dimensions of what the director shot, widescreen was the way to go. And that was one aspect of what convinced me. A friend of mine did a demonstration, I remember back in school, and he showed me, I think the movie was Aliens. What he was able to show me was how a white screen compared to a Panasket version. And then, you know, I got to see it and I was like, wow, you're absolutely right. There is so much more missing information with the regular standard format that I've been watching all these years. And there is an actual difference. You know, there is something to be said for more actual information. So there you have part of the reason why that is something that I kind of was attracted to. The next thing was the picture quality. Back then... The amount of information that you could put on a disc, the fact that you were reading it digitally through a laser, an actual laser was reading the information, made the picture quality a lot better than your typical tape being rubbed against, you know, a video head to create the image. The quality was completely different too. 
Let me go a little deeper here or technical in terms of the actual picture quality. We all grew up with tube sets and whenever we would watch a VHS tape, the best we can get out of that VHS tape as far as lines of resolution that would be projected into your television set from the VHS tape was 240 lines. This is the best that VHS could do. It could give you that much back in terms of, you know, playback ability. With LaserDisc, you had now a format that was a laser red format that could hold almost twice as much. It had 425 lines of resolution, horizontal resolution. So you are almost doubling the quality of the picture. That is one of the reasons why there was such a big difference in the improvement of the picture. Now, keep in mind that a lot of people didn't even touch lasers, only some of us did. Some people went straight from VHS to DVD. By the time you go to DVD, you go to 540 lines of resolution. That is a big, big jump. That's over twice as much as what you had with VHS. That is why people that go from VHS to DVD notice an even bigger difference. Those of us who went from laser to DVD, it was an improvement, but we were already kind of halfway there. Now, what's funny about DVD and even LaserDisc is that back then, and I remember this because I had a regular color tube set. And as I progressed with my laser discs and even DVDs, I ended up getting bigger television sets. Anytime I upgraded a set, I would get a bigger one and a bigger one. This way I could compensate for the letterboxing aspect. The fact that the picture was a little shorter, you know, top to bottom, I could compensate by getting a bigger set. But what I did notice was that when we jumped to digital televisions, watching material that came from VHS, from laser even, and from DVDs, they did not have the richness that you would get out of a tube set. Because these were not obviously manufactured for a HD television sets. By the time we got to Blu-ray, we are now dealing with 1080. 1080 lines of resolution. So remember, VHS, 240. Laser, 425, DVD 540, Blu-ray now explodes with 1080, twice as much, pretty much, as DVD, five times more than VHS, you know, it's, it's just a ridiculous number to kind of conceive in terms of why does it look so damn good, it's the resolution just completely blows everything out of the water, and remember, what's coming next, and it's already hitting the stores, is 4K, meaning almost 4 thousand the actual number i think is 3840 but it's 4k it's almost 4000 lines of resolution so imagine that ridiculous difference if blu-ray is only 1080 about a thousand 4k should be looking about four times better it just boggles the mind these numbers of how better these things get now granted you want to see 4k dvd you're going to have to get a 4k television set to understand that to comprehend those numbers. So there is something there that you gotta kinda understand and be able to compensate for this technology that just keeps getting better and better. Every time I go to the movies, I keep looking at the picture and I'm saying, I think we're there, the, the, the picture cannot get any better. And granted, I have yet to see a real true 4K demonstration. I think I might've seen some of those store uh, displays that have a, um, you know, like a nature show or something that was recorded on 4K, animals in the wild, that sort of thing. But I've yet to see a movie fully played in a 4K controlled environment to see exactly how much better is it because it's just amazing what kind of improvements keep taking place in picture quality. 
sometimes even depending on the connections, the connectors you had coming out of your laser displayer to your TV. They had connectors. I remember back then, I think it was the S-Video ones that kind of were introduced, I think, with VCRs back then. Some of them used to have S-Video connections. But yeah, even with laser displays, I remember you had some alternate ways of plugging them to your television. It provided your television had also those same kind of connectors that would improve your picture quality as opposed to just plugging it in through a regular RCA type of cable, you know, by itself. There were a number of different ways of connecting it that would make your picture look a lot better. And keep in mind, this is all before digital television. With digital television, everything just went completely out the window and the picture just exploded in terms of how much better it looked. 1080, you know, that is completely a whole other world. But by then we were dealing with the DVD world and obviously later the Blu-ray world. Now, some of the disadvantages that I remember were that, yeah, it was a new format. So you're always afraid of investing in a new format because you never know if it's going to last. But it was kind of known as the film snob format too, you know. It was for people that were really, really into film that you would go in that direction and start buying these films. The other thing was that some of these films were very expensive and they were very well known for box sets. The box sets were something that you really haven't had an experience yet with regular VHS formats, and that is supplemental material. Something that nowadays is like a standard with any DVD Blu-ray purchase is all this supplemental trailers, behind the scenes, interviews, director's commentary. That was a big, gigantic thing about LaserDisc is that finally you had a way of watching the film in a different manner. You could just not listen to the audio of the film and listen to the director narrating like how this film was made. Again, it was a film snob format. And we absolutely loved it. I jumped on it right away. I remember I was supposed to get one from a friend who was buying a whole mess of them for her work friends. All the work friends, they worked at a video duplication post-production facility. And they were all pooling their money together to buy a stack of them. And for whatever reason, at the last minute, my particular order didn't go through or something happened where they could only get a certain amount and I didn't make the cut. So I think it was 1991, December, I went to my local, which was about maybe about half hour, 45 minutes away, a store called Laserland. And I was aware of this store because again, my friend was already somebody who was living in the island and he was already the one who was aware of the store and he knew where to get these things. And the store was called Laserland. The store has obviously closed many, many years ago. And that's where they had a huge selection and they had all these box sets that I was just drooling over. Now, don't get me wrong. A lot of the uh, films they already had out there were also just bare bone films. You might get a disc with just, you know, the movie and maybe a trailer and that's it. Maybe a commentary if you're lucky, maybe not. And that's something you could get for a decent price. But if you wanted a box set, one of those super thick ones with multi-discs inside with a lot of extras and bonus material, some of them might come with a little booklet inside, you know, really, really beefy purchases, uh, those could cost you in the hundred uh, to hundreds of dollars, depending on what you were buying. Well, my first purchase was Aliens. You got to remember, it was and continues to be one of my favorite films. The supplemental material alone was just worth it a dozen times. The director's cut, the deleted scenes, 
you know, all these things, you, I just had to get my hands on them. And that was my first purchase, you know, off the bat. Uh, I remember I went with my wife, girlfriend at the time, uh, around Christmas time of 91 and made the purchase. And it took me days to go through all that supplemental material. But now that I'm switching formats, you know, I already had a VHS collection of uh, a lot of movies, obviously, you know, not, not an insane amount, but a, a reasonable amount of movies. It was kind of like, well, you know what? You got to start your basic food groups here. You need your Star Wars. Well, with Star Wars, again, I didn't want to go back to Panascan. So my point was, you know, if I'm in this new format, I only want widescreen. So for me, in order to start getting a lot of movies at, at once, one economical way of doing it at the time was to join the Columbia House Laserdisc Club. Now, I've talked about this a little bit in the past that I've belonged to the music club. I belonged to the Laserdisc Club. I belonged to the, I believe they even had a DVD club at one point. Every single format you can think of, they've had a Columbia House version of it. So in one swift move, I was able to order, I think for one penny, the three Star Wars films, the trilogy, in widescreen. That was very important because I wanted my material in widescreen. Now, at that time, luckily, you know, by the early 90s, we already had a version of Star Wars, the Star Wars original trilogy in a widescreen format. However, the lifespan of the Laserdisc versions of Star Wars went through a whole bunch of different steps until its eventual demise of the format. Now, a lot of this information that I have, the specific technical information having to do with Star Wars releases on Laserdisc, comes from a book I am currently reading called A Saga on Home Video, A Fan's Guide to U.S. Star Wars Home Video Releases by Nathan P. Butler. Now, I'm in the process of still reading this book, and it is really a very cool book in terms of the reference material, the pictures, and all the different formats that exist in all home video formats. This book goes from, believe it or not, from uh, 8mm film to laser to VHS to beta to DVD, Blu-ray, you name it. Uh, you know, they kind of go all the way through up until the Star Wars releases that happened very recently with Rogue One. This particular author... I kind of knew his name when I started looking at, you know, when I went through my Amazon list of potential books to buy, all of a sudden I'm looking at his name like, I know this name. Well, he used to be a contributor to Star Wars Action News. He would do all of the books, any book reviews for Star Wars Action News a long time ago. I'm not sure if he's involved in it. I, I don't think he is involved in it anymore, but he used to do all the books. Every time a new book would come out, he would do his segment reviewing that book. And in YouTube, he's got his own channel going over again reviewing all these books reviewing all these different video formats and eventually he very recently put out this book this reference book which is really cool and like i said i'm only about a quarter into it and i absolutely love it i love all the different versions that are out there that i've owned a lot of these things but i wanted today to focus on just the laser disc part because again for a film nerd you know especially you know thinking back to my college years that was one of the things that attracted you know our group of friends together was that you know how we all enjoyed watching these films and a lot of us ended up getting them i would, I would imagine from the group of friends that we had back then the four or five or six people that would be hanging out together having our get-togethers having to do with films and television that sort of thing laser discs were a big thing as laser discs started disappearing, then yeah, one of our friends would then all of a sudden have, hey, I have this DVD thing I just bought. You guys want to take a look? And we would look at it and go, well, I don't know. You know, we have lasers. They're so cool. And these, this is a new format. 
but it's a lot smaller and you know so we kind of went through that a few times are you a genre tv film sci-fi horror fantasy toy and convention nerd nerds do you enjoy listening to podcasts? It rubs the lotion on its skin or else it gets the hose again. Do you ever wish you could co-host a podcast? Mom! Take it easy. Lower it. I'm, I'm not going to lower it. I have to do this now. I don't mind you playing it, but lower it. This just might be your chance. Somebody help me! Help me! Help me! Help me! Shut up! Kickfest Rants is looking for new co-hosts. If you're interested, go to our homepage at geekfestrants.com and click on the hosting icon for more information. With Star Wars, it's funny because the way Star Wars on Laserdisc started was kind of very unusual, and I wasn't even aware of it until I read this book. The first official Laserdisc with a Star Wars... Uh, theme, if you will, wasn't even any of the movies. In 1981, they put out a Laserdisc of the making of Star Wars, which included the original making of Star Wars and the SPFX, The Empire Strikes Back making of Star Wars. It was a set. I probably have never seen it. I mean, I, I've seen the, the, the shows, the actual presentations, uh, you know, on VHS or on television or anywhere. Even on YouTube, these things, you can find them. But the actual Laserdisc, I don't think I've ever seen it. They had VHS versions of these, like I mentioned. But I don't understand why they would have picked those two to be their first Star Wars-themed release in that format. Very unusual. The first ever time that they actually released a Star Wars disc, I'm talking about a, a Star Wars A New Hope, in the Laserdisc format was in 1982. This cost about 35 bucks, which in 1982, that's that's uh, quite a lot of money, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. It was released in a CLV format, and that is an extended play format. Now, the thing you have to understand about Laserdiscs is that they were basically two formats in terms of the speed of the disc and how much information the disc would hold. Similar to VHSs, if you remember, you could record in one mode or you can record in another mode. And some even had a third mode. And depending on which mode you used, you would be able to record more material, but you would sacrifice a little bit of the picture quality. Well, with Laserdiscs, you had a similar situation. These early versions of Laserdiscs with the CLV mode, you had basically an hour on each side of the disc. And as I mentioned earlier, also because you had the early machines that wouldn't flip over. I mean, I never owned a machine that flipped. From what I understand, the flippers, what they used to call them flippers, they were more expensive, obviously, because you didn't have to go and flip the disc to the second side, you know, side two. But because of the mechanics of a machine that actually has to do so much movement, I believe those had a higher rate of breaking down. So this particular machine, like I said before, half the movie would be on one side, half the movie would be on the other side. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. If the disc can only hold one hour on each side, that means that the maximum amount of information you can put on these discs, or this disc, is two hours, one hour on each side. Well, Star Wars A New Hope is 121 minutes. So what they would do is they would run the film through a time-compressing unit so that a few seconds would be trimmed here or there. Certain static shots might be fast-forwarded a little bit, very slightly, so you barely notice it. So when it's all said and done, you're able to gain that one minute back, maybe 30 seconds in the first half and another 30 seconds on the second half. And that way you get to see the whole film more or less, but it's been slightly tweaked. 
so that you could squeeze all that information. Now, most of the times you might not even notice it, especially if you're dealing with one minute. One minute is not that much. The problem comes when you have a movie that's two and a half hours and you try to compress 30 minutes of it, time compressed 30 minutes of it. That's a very difficult, sloppy thing to do. This particular release was also in stereo. Back then, stereo is how they started as far as audio options were concerned. In 1983, they took the same film, repackaged it, once again in stereo, sold it under one disc. The big, no difference whatsoever, except for the repackaging. There's a lot of repackaging that gets done through the years. Every couple of years, they basically re-release certain things and just repackage them, and people buy them. In 1984, they re-release Star Wars, and they add The Empire Strikes Back. Both of them, once again, in the CLB format. Now they have stereo and surround sound as far as the audio options. Again, this is a Laserdisc. One of the advantages of Laserdisc also was the fact that the audio was much better. And you had the capability of processing the sound through a home theater system. You know, that gave you a little more as far as sometimes it gave you more channels, sound separation, that sort of thing. And in this case, the introduction of surround sound to a format. This was also in one disc. Here's the catch. The Empire Strikes Back was 124 minutes. Well, this got a little more complicated now. Because of the time compression technology, they for Empire Strikes Back, they had to compress four minutes. Which, again, I don't know if you can notice it in these older discs, but it's unfortunately something that you had to deal with. You still did not have a true version, a true reproduction, as far as time goes, of the film. In 1985, they finally introduced a CAV format, which is the standard play format. With the uh, release of Star Wars and The Empire Strikes Back in, like I said, CAV. This CAV format is a little different because what happens now is you have a disc that instead of an hour on each side holds 30 minutes on each side. So what happens here is that, for example, with Star Wars, it's one hour and 21 minutes. You end up having three discs in order to spread out all of that information without having to compress the time. Same thing with Empire Strikes Back. You can now spread it out. Unfortunately, it takes more discs. It's going to cost you more money. In this particular case, each movie was running for about $70 because you are giving the customer more physical material. You're going from one disc of recorded material to three discs of two and a half sides worth of recorded material per film. Now, because you're spreading it out so much and you're not compressing so much audio and even video, the picture quality is somewhat better. One of the best features about the CAB format is that you can actually pause things and look at a frame in a still clean format. You couldn't do that with CLVs. So, you know, you are paying more, but you are getting your money's worth. You are getting the ability to pause images cleanly. You are getting an actual real running time of the film, and you're not dealing with compression anymore. However, one unusual matter with this particular release was that the jacket was actually incorrectly labeled as 118 minutes because they did not correctly label the running time of the film. They were still kind of stuck on the old, you know, we have to compress uh, type of uh, running times. Another problem they had with this particular format is one that kind of haunted them for a while, is that there were certain mistakes made when the film was released in the theaters when it comes to sound depending on which mix you had whether it was a stereo mix or a mono mix sometimes the wrong audio track or the wrong audio take would be placed in a scene and that kind of thing carried over to the home market you might remember it being one way in the theater and then all of a sudden there's a different one when you're watching it at home the most noticeable ones from what i read were the Aunt Peru lines they sound a little different there's a couple of luke lines from the uh, death star battle and there's a couple of C-3PO lines 
also from within the Death Star that were completely at one point omitted. But the fact that it was CAV, it was still a very good improvement, you know, overall. In 1986, you have Return of the Jedi on Laserdisc. This is a two-disc, three-sided release, which means it's an extended play release. But what they did, instead of going to the CAV route, like they did with the other two films this time, they stayed with the CLV route, but they added an extra disc. So it's kind of an unusual, weird combination of why wouldn't you do CAV when you just did it before, but instead at this point, you're giving me no time compression, but you're adding another disc to the pile. So that was an unusual uh, pick for introducing Return of the Jedi. Now let's keep in mind, up to this point, we're still dealing in pan and scan. Widescreen has not been introduced to America yet. However, for some reason in Japan, and part of it had to do with the fact that Japanese film audience were a little more um, artsy, I guess you could say, in terms of their appreciation of film. And at that time, there was a higher demand for that kind of thing in Japan. So in 1986, in Japan, they introduced a CAV version of Star Wars called the Special Collection in a CAV widescreen format, which was, wow, they're actually introducing it into the market. The following year in 87, they also got a CAV widescreen of The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, again, labeled as a special collection edition. Wonderful. You know, they get it <laughs> and we're waiting for it. 1989, Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back, wide visions finally arrive for the US market. These are CLVs, unfortunately, extended play discs, two discs each, which means no compression. We are getting away from the compression of time, which is good, but you end up having an extra disc. You have to another, you know, switch, flip, switch, flip, that kind of thing. So, hey, whatever it takes. The following year, 1990, we get Return of the Jedi, widescreen, also in CLV, extended play, two discs, just like the other, the previous two. Now, with this particular widescreen edition, a couple of new problems kind of reared their head. They had some issues with the placement of the black bars because, and it had to do, I think, somebody was saying with the, in Japan, because of the subtitles, the, the picture slightly shifted upwards to make room for more subtitles in the black bar underneath, as opposed to putting the subtitles over the picture itself. Well, when they made the American version, they had a little problem putting the image back where it should be. There was apparently also issues with the image slightly shifting over depending on the scene and the aspect ratio of certain shots changing slightly. Again, very minimal, but, you know, for the film snob, it's the type of thing that, that you know, kind of like starts to drive you crazy after a while. In 1992, they did a release of Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back Return of the Jedi in the CLV extended play format, once again. But this time around, they did full screens with time compression. And they did one disc apiece. So I guess <laughs> they wanted to give people, you know, one more pan and scan format for the people that were still hankering for that. Now, the wide visions that I mentioned before is the one that I ended up getting through Columbia House, the one that I talked about earlier. In 1993, we finally got the monster set that people were hoping that we would one day get. It was called the Star Wars Trilogy, The Definitive Collection, and I have that. I remember for that particular disc, what I did is I traded in my original white screens. There was a company, I think it was called Laser Craze out of Boston, Massachusetts. And what they did was they would sell discs, but they would also buy all discs, used discs, in exchange for store credit. 
So a lot of times when I knew that there were special editions coming out in terms of box sets, and I already owned a, an original version, whether it was widescreen or Panascan or whatever, depending on what you had, especially the widescreens, they would give you store credit. So once you had enough store credit, obviously you can then apply towards a, a new purchase. Well, what I did was I sold them a lot of other discs that I had that I started getting rid of, including my original Star Wars, original widescreens that I had gotten from Columbia House. And I used this money to apply towards the purchase of this one because this monster was $250 retail. I don't remember how much I ended up paying for it because I traded in so many discs for it to, you know, to lower the price. Other than the fact that this was a monster size set, one of the additional bonuses of the actual disc was that the films were remastered and coded with THX sound. Uh, again, a new sound system. I mean, THX sound was around for a while, theaters, but now they were introducing it to the home market, to the home theater market, and these discs were being encoded in THX if you had the proper player that could decode THX. But the THX uh, logo and, the, and, and, and it wasn't just meant for audio. It also implied video in terms of the remastering of the film. There was a noticeable improvement in the picture quality. These discs were all CAV, so you can imagine how many discs this set was. The actual box set, which is pretty huge, came with a giant book inside. George Lucas, The Creative Impulse. It was packed. This is a pack packed set. The set also fixed some of the issues that they had that I mentioned before with some of the audio issues with the framing issues from the original, you know, first letterbox set, you know, the, the, the aspect ratio was wrong in some shots. Video and audio remastered. One problem with the set was that for whatever reason, the C3PO error that was fixed on a previous version somehow crept back into this set. This is a very minor issue that was resolved by allowing uh, people to exchange one of the discs so that they had the proper one. And I believe I never took advantage of that. I believe I probably still have the original bad disc with those missing lines. So this was a monster. Like I said, this was an absolutely monster set. It was called a definitive set for, and, and, and the bonus features were all over the place. You had commentaries from the director, obviously, and a lot of the technical people, and, and they were scattered everywhere in the disc. They weren't continuous. They would kind of go in and come out. All the trailers were there. So many behind-the-scenes material. It was just the most extensive Laserdisc set that was ever put out at that time. Now, while this is happening here in the U.S., Japan starts to catch up to a definitive collection. In 94, Japan puts out the same as ours, basically pretty much the same, except for the, they put a, they added a slip cover to the book. Then in 95, they released two sets, a definitive collection in a CLV format, which is again, kind of odd. You know, why would they go backwards? But they also included the making of Star Wars and SPFX, The Empire Strikes Back and classic creatures Return of the Jedi. So that first disc that I was telling you about from 1981, two of those documentaries are in here for the Japanese version. And then they added the third one. And the third one, I believe, was a documentary from CBS about the making of Return of the Jedi. Then also that year, Japan puts out another version of it, once again, in the CLV format. But the bonus disc included in this one is not the previous two. This one is From Star Wars to Jedi, The Making of a Saga, that other documentary that I believe was from PBS that is out there still to this day. So they were able to release those as part of, uh, you know, their domestic Japan releases, which is something we never saw included in Laserdisc format with the films. It was only there the first time and I missed it. I never even heard of it. 
1995, we have the release of what is sometimes called the Faces cover, Laserdiscs, which is a THX remastered version of the Definitive Collection, except it's a more affordable version of that. This is all three films, and they each has the face of a character instead of the classic poster. They are standard play, CAV, with no compression, and the only bonus material, as opposed to an extra book and the tons of materials that we have in the Definitive Collection, the only bonus material is an interview between Leonard Maltin, the film critic, and George Lucas. And this is the one that in all formats, they were touting them as the last time that you could own the Star Wars trilogy in its original format. That's because they knew that around the corner, this is 1995 we're talking about, they've been already working on the special editions. So it was a way to rebrand the fact that they're about to move into something new. Now, in 1997, right after the special editions get released in the movie theaters, the ones with George Lucas filmed new scenes and added stuff and deleted stuff. The release of the special edition trilogy comes out. This was another large box set, not as large as Definitive Collection, but it's basically the special editions, all in a set. In it, they did a weird combination. What they did is they put Star Wars A New Hope, one disc, side one, side two, CLV, side three, CAV. So it's kind of like you get to watch the Death Star battle, <laughs> the trench battle, in the CAV format, I guess you could freeze it and, and it's a little better way to do it, I guess. I don't know why you would do such a thing. The Empire Strikes Back, side four and five, CLV. Side six, CAV. Oh, okay. So the best bin duel is the one that you can watch in better quality and you can freeze. And for Return of the Jedi, sides seven and eight, CLV. What? <laughs> CLV. They completely did not go CAV at all in that format. So eh, what are you going to do? Hey, at least you got something. <laughs> One of the noticeable differences with this particular release is that it would also have a digital Dolby 5.1 sound track on it, which, like I mentioned before, as these versions progressed, so did the audio capabilities of them. Now, unfortunately, the 1997 version, which is the special editions, was the final version for Laserdisc. Not too long after that, you know... Laserdisc sales were already declining. VHS was still strong, but right around the corner was DVD. DVD was the new kid on the block, and uh, it kicked uh, Laserdisc's butt left and right. However, one little footnote in the history of Laserdiscs is that, as I mentioned earlier, Japan was a bigger fan of Laserdiscs technology and the way that they continue to stick with it a little longer than we did. And in this particular case, approximately five years later, they got The Phantom Menace. This was the only known version of The Phantom Menace to be released in Laserdisc form. It went straight to Japan and... Like I said earlier, the format was dying, but Japan was still holding on to it a little bit longer than us. Because at that time, we still hadn't gotten our DVD version of the film. You know, some of the high-end collectors, even in the States, were trying to get their hands on The Phantom Menace in Laserdisc form. Because that was the, you know, the best available format. But again, you would be importing it from Japan. So wasn't a great, great idea. I could be wrong, but I have a feeling that maybe I rented a copy and that I was able to make a copy of it myself in VHS form, which is kind of silly. But I remember I used to do that at the time. There were times where certain Laserdiscs would be available only in Japan and through some of the stores that I would rent from, specifically Laserland. I remember, I think it was might have been Pulp Fiction, that I actually copied the 
disc, the LaserDisc, two VHS, and I ran it through a Grass Valley switcher in order to eliminate the letterbox area that contained the Japanese subtitles. This way it would have a, I guess, an American-looking version of Pulp Fiction completely for me and my friends. But for Phantom Menace, I believe, I'm not entirely sure, but I believe that was, again, the only way you could get your hands on it was to rent in it. And unfortunately, unless you could burn some kind of a video disc out of it, which Back then, I don't think many people could. VHS was the way to go. The disc itself came in a two-disc CVL extended play format. So they never really uh, went all out in terms of being able to even convert this to a CAV way for the, you know, for the high-end people. But that is technically the last one that was manufactured in Laserdisc form from the Star Wars film library. So, as I mentioned before, I still, you know, I did get rid of my original white screens, but I do still own my definitive collection and I still own my special edition in Laserdisc format in those big box sets. I never got rid of my big, most of my big box sets, even though I can't play them because I don't even have a machine anymore. But the packaging and the, the craftsmanship, if you will, of these, some of these sets, not only Star Wars, but other films that were, you know, in, in the box set format, they're just gorgeous, the amount of work that they put into these things. The definitive set is also one that there are certain materials that are included there that have never been transferred over to DVD form or Blu-ray form. There are certain things that were never copied over and I knew they, I had the feeling they were never going to and they haven't yet. So what I did is at one point I transferred from laser to my computer and then I burned off DVD discs of some of the features that I was pretty certain we were never going to see replicated somewhere else. So for example, all the commentaries, I copied them all to a DVD form. A lot of the supplemental material I copied over, some of it didn't end, eventually end up in, in DVDs and Blu-rays. But unfortunately, like I said, the era of the Laserdisc kind of died away. Most of those stores closed. All of them closed in reality. Uh, they became something else. Some of them were able to transfer into DVD purchase, you know, DVD stores. They went from laser to DVDs. And even Columbia House went bankrupt after a while. They closed down. They got as far as DVD, I think. But I believe something like maybe four or five years ago or six years ago, they completely went bankrupt. And that whole format of, you know, get X amount of movies for a penny disappeared. But it is a landmark of growing up you know, of my college years, if you will, and, and, and slightly beyond that. And yeah, it's something that will remain with us the same way that a lot of people older than us still hang on to their 8-track tapes and stuff like that. It was a breakthrough format. It introduced or it ushered the DVD era. People did realize that there was a market for a higher quality version of these films and the widescreen version of these films. Nowadays, again, thanks to our modern televisions, our modern aspect ratio, you know, HD television sets, we have to have widescreen. It's there. It is rare nowadays to find the movie that you'll find a pan and scan version of. Now, don't get me wrong. You still have channels that broadcast, believe it or not, <laughs> some pan and scan stuff, but it took its time and it served its purpose. It got us through and it introduced us, the movie nerds, to what was to come in the digital era. All right, well, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'd like to thank my wife, Kim, and my son, Kyle, for helping me do the Wonder Woman review. And I'd like to remind you guys once again, if you have a chance, 
please go to the IC Robots website where you'll have links to some of IC Robots' shows, including the Toys R Us Report, the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast, and a slew of other offshoot shows that are produced within the network that we are now proudly a part of. So until next time, we will see you soon here at GeekFest France. Bye-bye, everybody. Imagine seeing movies as close to the original cinema quality as possible at home. We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. Then you're ready for LaserDisc. The latest in home entertainment is the PAL LaserDisc player, a machine which plays both feature-length movies and compact music discs. This unit forms the ideal center of a home entertainment system. Feel your living room come alive as you experience your favorite concert or movie with up to 60% better picture quality, matched by the stunning digital sound of compact discs. Girl, we couldn't get much higher. Yeah. Hasta la vista, baby. And these discs don't wear out. They're the same high quality the first time or the 100th time you watch them. LaserDisc will become the format you choose for watching movies. And the extensive range released each month includes everything from classics to blockbuster new releases. No matter what your taste in movies or music, the PAL LaserDisc player allows you to enjoy the future today. Join the home entertainment revolution with LaserDisc. You won't believe the difference. If you would like to subscribe to our show, send us messages, or see video links to some of the topics we talked about today, please visit our homepage at geekfestrants.com or our YouTube channel, Facebook page, or iTunes at Geekfest Rants. I don't know what we're yelling about! Geekfest Rants is produced by Carlos Perone, copyright 2017. This broadcast is part of the IC Robots Radio Network. Visit icrobots.com for this and many other nerd slash nostalgia related podcasts. You won't be sorry for long. <laughs>